this panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March 2020. When people come to Queen's, they bring this rich background with them and they enrich this discipline, this university, this fabric in so many ways. And so, and Sue's someone to really thank for that. And thank you. Thanks to you and your team and the three of you, and welcome. Thank you. So I, I just want to start off by saying I think we have a fabulous interdisciplinary team that we've put together um, for this presentation. So our panel and site of the lower burial ground traverse several boundaries from our diverse backgrounds, as you've heard, our different levels in academia and skill sets of both professionals and volunteer participants. Our discussion highlights our different methods and ways of thinking about how we approach our investigations, conduct our specific tasks, and present our data. And in order to understand the evolution of this cultural landscape, we must understand who was here and when, and how this land was used over time. And then we can begin to see that it is layered with meaning. And the lands we speak about today are recognized as traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, and they're the people of the Longhouse, who are the six nations of the Iroquois, and the lands of the Anishinaabe, who are the Algonquin, Ojibwe, Mississauga, Ottawa people, and others. So there have been many different indigenous groups utilizing or have utilized the extensive resources that are available in this area. And these were people who moved through the area on a seasonal basis, archaeologically known through a number of hunting and fishing camps from what a period that we refer to as the Middle Woodland period, which is from about 1,000 to 1,500 years ago, and mostly located along the Cataraqui River. And that's the big, you can see that, the big, uh, the big watershed right there. Um, a permanent settlement from about 500 years ago was located on a tributary of the Little Cataraqui Creek, which is a little, this little one right here. This place we are in starts as a natural landscape of trees on a ridge, the upper shore of an ancient river valley with a natural spring, a source of drinking water, just to the north. And it's transformed as the trees begin to be cut down. And a really fast trip through the written history that we have, in 1673, the first Europeans to make a permanent settlement here established Fort Frontenac. It was a French fur trade post on the western frontier, the first evidence we have of this land being transformed. And the approximate location of our site is where the red circle is. And there are three iterations of the French fort that were developed each larger and stronger, transforming from a wooden palisaded structure to full masonry by the 1680s. Fort Frontenac was attacked by the British during the Seven Years' War, and it was surrendered in 1758. The fort in this area were not officially occupied by the British until 1783, after the American Revolutionary War had ended. 
So that's a fast gallop through several <laughs> thousand years of history. So now we move into um, the Loyalist period. So part of the new Loyalist settlement of Cataraque, subsequent to the American Revolutionary War, the lower burial ground was surveyed in 1783 as the Anglican burying ground for St. George's Church. Indeed, it was the only burying ground for all denominations until the establishment of the Roman Catholic Churchyard of St. Columba in 1808. It's situated on the edge of town, and it was rapidly filled with the prominent citizens of the community that became Kingston, including members of the Cartwright family, the Stewart family, Molly Brandt, Sir Richard Henry Bonnycastle, Murneys, Macaulays, Sir Robert Hall, soldiers and unnamed sailors, and black slaves brought from the 13 colonies. For over 60 years, the lower burial ground remained just that. But more space for the deceased was required, and for different denominations leading to the establishment of the three-denomination upper burial ground for Anglicans, Roman Catholics, and Presbyterians in 1825, and the Union Cemetery for nonconformists in 1827. By the 1840s, with increased immigration, and a short stint as the capital of the United Province of Canada, three new Anglican churches were needed in Kingston. The lower burial ground was essentially full by that point in time, and St. Paul's Church was built in 1847 in the middle of the lower burial ground. So we should consider what meaning the lower burial ground had to individuals and the community between its establishment in 1783 and those 60 years as a place of remembrance and commemoration. Now, a destructive fire in 1854 provided the opportunity for enlargement at the north end, where you can see the rectangle there at the church. Um, and they added a chancel, an organ loft, and a vestry. And completion of this rebuild was seen by 1856. So graves must have been disturbed by such construction. But the church construction and enlargement were not the only activity to impact the lower burial ground. Is in 1872, permission was granted to St. Paul's to construct a Sunday school on the northwest corner of the burial ground. So what, you might wonder, happened to that portion of the burial ground? And even more puzzling is what happened to the burial ground on the east side of the church. No images or documents provide us with any clues as to when this area was denuded of all evidence of graves. St. Paul's congregation pleaded with St. George's in 1878 to fix up the graveyard or to relinquish ownership. But St. George's responded that they had no money to do any um, repair work and they were not prepared to give up title to the land. And then Water and Sewer Services modernized the Sunday School and Church Hall in 1931. So the place, and therefore sense of place, changed in the 1840s when the church was built, and then again when the Church Hall was constructed in 1872. So it evolved from a sacred landscape of the dead to a sacred landscape for the living. In 1937, parishioner Lieutenant Colonel Charles E. Long wrote a brief history of St. Paul's Church, and he included the only, to our knowledge, plan of the lower burial ground to that point in time. He found, quote, 
71 memorials, including a tomb and eight gravestones located under the parish hall, end quote. And if you think about that, 60 years of people dying and only 71 memorials and eight graves and a tomb. So there's a few missing. Um, The west side of the burial ground continued to deteriorate, and it seems that the parish members undertook some cleaning up and preservation activities between the 1930s and the 1950s. And these images give us a pretty good idea of what the burial ground would have looked like overall, with its large monuments, its table and altar stones, and seemingly what I refer to as the ubiquitous footstones, and that's the area circled in red. Still not permitted to rest until eternity, the next major intervention in the lower burial ground occurred between 1959 and 1960 when the church was joined to the church hall, and that's the area outlined in red. The foundation of this connecting structure was situated well below grade, and it certainly impacted graves. The north and east side of the church property were paved in 1970, and a 1972 scale drawing of the lower burial ground revealed that 13 monuments had disappeared since 1937. Now, we know that some of those were preserved and moved to the south wall of the church hall. By 2008, several monuments and the west perimeter stone wall required restoration, which prompted the formation of the Lower Burial Ground Restoration Society. This not-for-profit volunteer-run organization has an agreement with the Anglican Diocese of Ontario to take care of the Lower Burial Ground and to secure funds for various restoration projects. Although the area under the church hall had been on their radar, other projects had higher priority, and I would just like to acknowledge that um, support for our participation in this conference was generally pro- generously provided by the um, society. And for those of you who don't know, John Grenville is here today, and he's actually the president of the uh, Lower Burial Ground Restoration Society. So he's come to make sure that we're, uh, we're doing what we're supposed to do. <laughs> okay, so that ends our general introduction and context. So now you're going to have to listen to me again for a bit more, and um, I'm going to talk to you about approaches to recording and interpreting through a geographical and archaeological perspective. So using the Lower Burial Ground Cultural Resources Recording Project, I'm going to discuss how we undertook to record this cultural landscape and some of the logistical issues that our volunteer team faced. With funding from the City of Kingston Heritage Fund, the Cultural Resources Recording Project under the Church Hall began in April 2019. It required the removal of almost 150 years of accumulated garbage and dust, the results of multiple construction activity events, and also lots of recording. Undertaken as a stage one archeological assessment under requirements of the Ontario Ministry of Heritage, Sport, tourism and culture industries and guidance of the Bereavement Authority of Ontario, we had several constraints and unusual working conditions, as you can see in these images, including low headroom, low pipes, high levels of airborne particles, 
restricted access to the space being afternoons only, which actually suited us quite well, and a fluctuating crew of volunteers who were scheduled according to their availability through a doodle poll and managed through a spreadsheet and regular emails by assistant coordinator Paulina Marchik, who is wearing the Queen's shirt and the lovely pink, um, the pink respirator. Um, Paulina is a graduate, a master's graduate from the Department of Geography and Planning, and she was fantastic. A heritage stonemason and colleague anchored eight screws into the stone foundation walls from which we could extend string lines to establish our reference lines. And I'll talk about that in the more detail in the bit. The cleaning process had to comply with the direction of both the Ministry and the Bereavement Authority of Ontario. Although classified as an archaeological project and conducted under license, we did not excavate, we did not use trowels to dig, and we did not have permission to impact previously undisturbed graves. So what we actually did was a lot of sweeping, removing and screening the dust for human remains and gathering the scattered stone chips. You can see a rather massive pile there, um, which no doubt resulted from the building activities in 1872. Three training sessions for all volunteers were held, one on May 11th, May 22nd, and then July 3rd, to give all of the participants an opportunity to understand the activities and to assess the level of their participation. Volunteer training sessions included an overview of the history of the site, an introduction to early cemeteries, processes to be followed, health and safety briefing, and a tour of the site. To clean the surface to the required depth, we initially planned to establish elevations at five key points in our work area using GPS or global positioning system readings. However, because the site was underground, we were not able to get satellite acquisitions or a clear signal. So instead, through data provided by the city of Kingston, we identified a lag bolt in the pole at the corner of Queen and Sydenham streets, and you can see us very close to the intersection at an exact geographic location to establish an initial absolute elevation. And with assistance from a professional surveyor who is also a master's uh, student graduate from the Department of Geography and Planning, uh, who generously volunteered her time, elevations at the corners of the church property were worked out using a total station. And we were eventually able to bring the elevation into the basement and finally into our work area to establish those five reference points. To record future locations, we investigated the use of phone apps, including ArcGIS Survey 123 and ArcGIS Collector. However, we anticipated that volunteers might have difficulty navigating these apps in a dusty environment where physical damage to electronics was possible. And it became clear that everyone would be more comfortable using traditional paper forms, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> using such forms allowed us to have a volunteer form manager who checked everything over after each session to ensure completeness and consistency, which made it easier for future volunteers to record features that were found in the same location and just continue on using the same form. These forms were utilized for all data recording during the cleaning process and included unit forms, feature forms, human remains record, and photographic record. Now the control grid 
which I mentioned earlier, was established without the use of spikes or stakes by anchoring those eight screws into the stone foundation walls from which four string lines were extended to establish the reference lines. And those are the, uh, the four red lines extending from the red triangles. Within this control grid, a total of nine operations were established, each measuring approximately three meters north-south by four meters east-west each operation containing a total of six approximately one by two meter units. Pin flags were also used to mark out each area or each unit to be cleaned by a two-person team. The furnace room at the north end of St. Paul's Church was identified as Operation 10, where several broken fragments of grave markers were located. And it was important to include these in our recording activities. Um, cleaning and recording was systematically undertaken by grid unit, starting with the areas of greatest debris, and those were in operations one and nine. With the hope of using various forms of technology totally dashed, and finding the need to resort to more traditional mapping methods, we had to get on with creating an as-found site plan before any of the cleaning was undertaken. And so the challenge then became teaching volunteers who had essentially grown up with GPS, Esri's GIS, and CAD technology, how to map using tapes, line levels, and plumb bobs, plotting by hand to a scale of 1 to 25. Now, this was hilarious for me, and to many of my colleagues at the last archaeological conference that I presented this at in the fall. Um, but none of the volunteers involved in this site plan mapping who are all geography grad students. <laughs> I know, it's, it, was, it was very sweet to have them involved. But none of them had ever seen, let alone knew, how to use plumb bobs and line levels. This mapping process, using the multiple reference lines as baselines and offset readings at points along those lines, was rather like a bizarre game of twister, requiring multiple pairs of hands and contortionist moves. But they rose to the challenge, and they did a fabulous, incredible job of doing this recording. So all encountered features, including whole and fragmented grave markers, debris mounds, and modern interventions such as concrete pads and jack posts, were plotted on the site plan, and it was then redrawn in CAD. Details of the grave markers, other stones, and human remains were all recorded according to their location within the control grid. Information on the stones was transcribed and photographed. With a future view to make the site accessible to the general public, we employed a terrestrial laser scanner, or TLS, which uses LIDAR, light detection, and ranging technology. And Tim is going to talk a little bit more about the details of that, because I don't know how it works. The resulting product from a TLS provides a spatially comprehensive model of the site that can be tied to any spatial coordinate system. And there you can see we use the FaroFocus 3D by 130 sensor and five scans inside the site. And I'm going to try, and hopefully this will work, but I can show you how this so this is what the LIDAR scans, uh, how they came together. 
This is actually um, the resulting image is a point cloud that represents the site in 3D space. And this is from the scans at the start of the project. And you can see the um, grave markers, some standing stones, lots of rubble and debris, and the piles of, of um, dirt and dust and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it also recorded the jack posts and um, everything that we could see uh, inside that space. So this is, uh, this is really cool. Uh, now, let's get back out of there. And back to you. And boom. Okay. Due to budget constraints, we could not get a professional RTI or reflectance transformation imaging survey completed, as we had done for the above ground portion of the lower burial ground. And in RTI, a single camera is used to take multiple images of an object while the light source is moved around that object. The software then compiles and manipulates the images to enhance surface detail. So as you can see here, um, not very good. But we devised a system whereby we used a trouble light from Canadian Tire <laughs> testing it at various angles to mimic RTI and found this method to be very effective in helping discern the inscribed lettering on gravestones. Although many of the stones um, essentially were less weathered because they had been inside for um, 150 years, most of them benefited from this uh, type of sort of rather cheap technology um, with a raking light rather than flash photography. The gravestones could be read and recorded after our pseudo-RTI method was used. And we also found, incidentally, that my 21-megapixel camera on my Motorola X-Play cell phone uh, resulted in very high-quality images without using a DSLR camera. In fact, all the images in um, this presentation, my presentation, are, were done with the, um, the cell phone, which was really convenient because I was very nervous about having to lug in and out of that dusty space, very expensive camera equipment. But as you can see, um, by using this, this type of um, raking light, even barely visible decorative treatments became evident. So these, this is the same um, stone, and you can see on the right-hand side, you can see that um, very lightly carved um, decorative piece. To capture additional images, we used a Ricoh Theta 360 camera to record the site before cleaning operations began. And we set up the camera on a tripod at six locations across the site. And we retook these photos at the end of the project period to record progress. Now, without the, um, the, the software, you can't manipulate the 360, so that's why they look so weird. But anyway, we just did everything. So it's worth considering what meaning this site held for all of the project participants, whether professionals or volunteers, who spent almost 800 hours, in fact, the number is 794.91 hours, um, transforming this corner of the lower burial ground from the garbage receptacle it had essentially become back towards a sacred landscape, documenting all the information on the stones, the human remains, mapping the location of everything using a myriad of techniques, to contribute to the digital archive. During these cleaning activities, we removed 
mortar, stone chips, insulation, armored electrical cable, cigarette butts, smashed light bulbs, copper pipe from plumbing upgrades, furnace, furnace ash and cinders, pieces of discarded furniture, and perhaps the hardest to believe, Bibles. And I like to think that those Bibles were being chucked underneath the church hall by the Sunday school attendees as they left to go to the bathroom because they had to go outside before the plumbing um, upgrade, the water and sewer upgrade in 1931. So that's, that's my story for that. A total of 94 pieces of grave marker or monument stones were recorded. The heaviest concentration was in the north third of the study area underneath the church hall. Operation 1 had 14 fragments, 4 had 15, and Operation 7, 22. And they contained both inscribed and uninscribed grave markers, as well as what are likely monument bases or perhaps plot curb stones. So totaling in that um, uh, northern third, 51 fragments or, or whole pieces. The middle third contained 13 stones, while the southern third only 10 stones. So this doesn't indicate um, the level of disturbance, but it illustrates where the stones were redeposited, and certainly since the 1937 recording effort. Since no known plot plan exists prior to 1937, it's not possible to identify where any of the grave markers were originally positioned. Two new discoveries were made, um, and this is a footstone, and you can see three sets of initials um, on that. Um, but this, these initials don't match any of the known burial records. So that's a bit of a mystery. Um, we also had a new headstone, um, new, a new old headstone, which had likely been pushed over during the 1872 construction of the church hall and then covered over with construction and other debris. A concrete pad for a jack post installed in 1999 was poured on the base of the stone, and you can see that on the upper left of the... You can actually see the concrete pad there of that image. Um, and the 15 fragments of a large inscribed stone that was originally located on the vault structure, and that's the structure that uh, Long referred to in his uh, history, were found scattered throughout the area, and most of it's been reassembled now. In the furnace room, Operation 10, uh, it contained 20 fragments of grave markers. Of these, 14 were inscribed, two had decorative elements, and four were uninscribed. All are completely removed from their original context, and three do not appear in Long's inventory of 1937. Um, and they don't match up with the current burial records that we have, so there's clearly more research that needs to be done. Human remains were collected during the cleaning process, but none of them were from in situ burials. A total of 34 fragments of human bone were recovered, which will be reburied on site once the cleaning and recording is completed as per the direction of the Bereavement Authority of Ontario. So we know where this place is. We know the exact geographic location. We have a sense of its natural state before European use and settlement transformed the landscape. We have a reasonable chronology of the history of the Lower Burial Ground and St. Paul's Church. We have a reasonable idea of the number of people who were buried here from the burial register, but we are not certain. We cannot begin to know how many of the burials were disturbed over time, but we can agree that the cultural landscape that was the lower burial ground is today much diminished and changed. It is still a place of remembrance and commemoration, but it's also a place of worship, of many community activities in the church hall 
and it's also a parking lot. So while there are remnants of the sacred landscape of the dead, it is definitely a place for the living. And now we have begun to restore dignity to a small piece of the lower burial ground. And that's mine. Oh, there it is. I'm just moving it too fast. I can't see it. Um, then we will get Tim's presentation. I just wanted to see Tim, you're setting up. I did forgot to say in the beginning how, how honored the Fireplace Series is to be hosting this particular session, which fits all the remit of interdisciplinary full spectrum. <laughs> Awesome. Well, hello all. I'm Tim, and I bring the geophysical examination um, slash aspect to this. Um, there were a lot of geophysics and geological instrumentations, instruments used in this project. Um, so I'm kind of here um, representing um, geology and geological engineering um, and just kind of showing our point um, and kind of where our data collection came through and what there is to be interpreted um, from our sense. Um, so to begin, I would like to say that the discipline that I'm in or I'm representing um, relies heavily on assumptions on the subsurface of the ground, um, especially for the presentation we're doing. Um, so a lot of what I will be saying um, is along the, along the lines of assumptions and isn't a solid fact and it's not a falsehood, it's just the data we are presented. Um, it's also very difficult to know exactly what's under the ground. And this is very important to know because without actually taking um, the work that Sue has obviously done and all the wonderful volunteers have done and taking the time to do that, you'll never know um, what's exactly under the ground. And this is because our instrumentation is limited by um, the frequencies and the um, amount of data, like the actual um, uh, quality of data you can achieve. Um, so this data that we've collected um, using the GPR device as seen kind of right here. Um, this data needs to be interpreted, and I'll show you more about that. Um, but basically, the GPR device, um, as seen here, is run by a couple people. You just push it like a lawnmower, and it's very simple and easy. Um, so right now, you might be asking, what is a GPR? What is this device we're using? Well, it's a ground-penetrating radar. Um, it is a geophysical instrument that transmits and receives waves, um, kind of in the image shown to the right there. Um, it's kind of like there's a transmitter on the front, there's a receiver on the back, and it sends waves and it comes back. Um, the waves are of a similar frequency to a microwave, um, like one you'd find in your house. Um, and they behave differently depending on the dielectric permittivity of the subsurfaces they're hitting. I'll talk a bit later about dielectric permittivity, um, but basically that's the contrast that we're looking at to determine um, where anomalies can be found. Um, so this data is put into a program and again needs to be interpreted. And you'll see some images coming up right after this of the um, data that's been put into a program um, from the site, um, one of the lines. So it would be running um, through um, sections one, four, and seven. Um, and this will be, I'll show you. Um, and yes, so it's a very quick survey relative to other geophysical surveys. And it also provides the highest level of resolution um, we can get for other geophysical instrumentation. Um, for example, a seismic survey runs at too low of a frequency to pick up anything um, at this scale. 
Um, and a way to improve this survey would be having a higher frequency on your ground penetrating radar. So now here is the data that's been collected and put through this program, and now it's time for it to be interpreted. So the yellow in this image that's kind of visible at the very top, this represents disturbed ground. Um, so this gives a, or what we believe is to be disturbed ground, so this gives a good basis of the depth of disturbed ground. So this area where you're seeing all of these fragments um, of everything um, would be found likely in this zone as the ground under that is interpreted to be undisturbed um, from being turned up and having graves in it and having other um, fragments. So um, that's a very good place to start for a survey like this. Um, it's very good information. You may be asking what the long lines are. Um, those lines that show a higher, um, I guess, higher resolution of data to a sense um, are likely just um, ringing from the machine. So it's hit a metal object or um, a pillar or something along those lines, and basically the waves go down and they keep reflecting off the same surface. Um, and GPR is very limited by um, conductive elements due to, due to its reliance on dielectric permittivity. So moving on, this is another survey that we conducted. Um, I don't know if you're able to see, um, but it's a survey we conducted in the fall, probably a week after this survey, um, at a um, uh, uh, Willoughby Cemetery, um, and that's in Merrickville. Um, so it's a very similar survey, um, kind of the same length, but you can kind of see, I don't know if you can see here, but right there, you can see the hyperbolas. They look kind of like, um, like rainbows, um, some people can see it better in the top one, some like in the top um, image, and some people can see it better in the bottom image. I put them both there um, because there was not a consensus within our group which one was easier to see. Um, but basically, this is kind of when we're looking for burials, this is the type of anomaly we're looking for. Um, as you noticed in the last image, um, we didn't particularly see any of those, but the reason for that that we're predicting is that there aren't any undisturbed burials based on what we can see. Um, it looks very like very disturbed ground, which will make it very difficult for the data collection. Um, whereas here, um, these, as you can see, um, appear to be undisturbed burials. Um, and that's, and you can also, you might also note the different color pa uh, palette used. And the color palette is just for um, viewing purposes. Um, different palettes um, accentuate different things, which allow for um, better interpretation on our side. Um, and it's imp also important to say that it is absolutely impossible to say exactly what is under the ground because this is collecting wave data. It's not collecting a picture. Um, so it's kind of a big step in our discipline is understanding that um, what you're seeing, although it looks like a picture, is just a bunch of data collected that's been put into a program. Um, so it looks like a cross-section, but that's not actually what it looks like under the ground. Um, so it's very important to note. So what does it all mean? Um, so burials are located in this area, or fragments of burials at least. Um, that's been proven by um, the extensive work done um, in the past. Um, and geophysics can give an idea of certain aspects to it, but it is very limited by a lot of things, depending on where you are and how you use it. Um, as an example, the LIDAR is very effective for you can easily track the amount of um, uh, debris that's been removed. Um, if you continually do LiDAR scans, it's a very uh, efficient way of doing that, um, as well as uh, 
and I was talking about this before, um, we're very limited because the information's in waves, not pictures, so it's very reliant on interpretation. Um, and now I have some questions, you know. Are there any ideas of what else we can do? Or ideas of what else we can use to, like in this project? Um, how can we improve our study? And um, what parameters give us the best data? So these are all kind of questions that we should be thinking and continually using um, in our interpretation and in our study. Um, because these are what help us collect better data, um, more accurate data. Um, and just help us generally get a better sense of what's actually there. Um, but as of right now, kind of the best thing that we've seen is that the original undisturbed ground surface is a very good basis to confine a survey. Um, and now we're moving on to the next part. No, like literally, what does it mean? What do these terms that I've been using for this whole, like my part of the presentation, what do they mean? Um, it takes some years to learn them, but realistically they're very simple. LiDAR is basically just a laser. I think there's a laser right here. But basically, when I have my hand here, this laser is hitting here and reflecting back because the light, laser, light is reflecting back. So because you know the speed of the laser, you're able to tell the distance. So as my hand moves up and down, you can, it can tell the distance based on the, the, speed, of the, the speed and the time it takes. Um, so that is a very effective way of taking measurements because it's very accurate. Um, it is limited. Um, I, you can see trees in the picture to the right. Um, trees are often a very uh, limiting factor, but they can be worked around. Um, but in this situation, LiDAR is very effective. Um, and it allows for a really um, functional model to be built um, just by scanning a laser around a room a few times. Um, and then what about dielectric permittivity? Um, below you can see the actual <clears throat> definition of it. Um, but basically you are um, applying an external field into the subsurface and measuring the dielectric, like the information that's given back depending on the depth. Um, and that is why, um, as you can see, as you can see way before in the um, survey, that picture that I showed you, um, with depth, it gets um, kind of washed out or faded. That's because as you go deeper, your field only reaches a certain depth. Um, and that's my part. So, move on. slightly awful, but we're going to work with it. Okay. So, uh, I'm Alicia. I um, worked at the lower burial ground over the summer. And 
I guess a little bit about myself is I didn't come to the Lower Burial Ground as an art historian. I came as someone who has spent almost the past five, six years working in archaeology. I just finished a master's in classical archaeology, so um, most of my work has been done with uh, mostly Greek and uh, Etruscan archaeology in Greece and Italy. And I have uh, worked also on a cemetery in Greece, so this is kind of where my uh, interests lined up with the lower burial grounds. So my thesis for my last MA was also in pre it was on prehistoric tomb architecture in Greece. So I'm very interested in how we interpret uh, people once they've passed away and what we decide to do with their remains. <coughs> so grave markers is what I'm going to be talking about at the lower burial ground. Um, they have a lot of information to give us. So they serve quite a few functions beyond um, the ones that instantly pop to your mind. So they commemorate the life of the deceased. They give us information about the deceased that either the deceased themselves wanted known or what their relatives wanted known about these people. They give the uh, living an area to mourn the deceased. And most importantly, they mark where the body was most likely laid. Not always. Sometimes the bodies don't actually make it to the grave or they are lost or removed. So I'm just saying should be. There should be bodies there. We don't know for sure. So early grave markers um, uh, in 19th century Ontario were commonly, were originally made in wood and then this quickly changes because wood isn't very durable. So they move from wood to stone and the types of stone that we see are, we start with uh, marble, and we also have limestone, and then later in the 19th century, we move on to granite, uh, which is what we still use today normally, because granite is very durable. So, the marble, I'd like to just quickly talk about. Uh, marble, we don't think um, that would be moved around in this area quite as much as it was, but even in the early 19th century, marbles being moved from quite far away um, down into Kingston to make these tombstones. Um, yeah. oh, there's also a very brief period where they use metal for uh, grave markers and it didn't really ever catch on. They were kind of hard to make and also it's a lot of metal to try to like, and they corrode. So there's issues with that. Before I get to the lower burial grounds, I wanted to quickly jump back to ancient Greece to start us off. So this is an ancient Greek stele, um, and they're actually very similar to 19th century uh, grave markers here in Ontario. And this is because the main style that um, people in Ontario were mimicking was either late medieval or the classical style. So we're getting a lot of influence from Greece. So this grave stele is for Nicomenia and Stephanie. It's two women. Um, it's also nice to note that women were never named in ancient Greece because it was seen as uh, kind of immoral and it was a very big affront to them. Um, so women are only normally named um, after their death or in very rare cases. So 
This is from the Sacred Way, which is the main road that leads into Athens. Uh, everyone was buried here, and then you kind of get um, the people closest to the road were rich and like could buy that space, kind of what we see today too. Um, and this is from the mid fourth century BCE. So we're talking like a pretty long time ago and we're still seeing comparisons. So just quickly details. This is the relief of the two women most likely and someone maybe a slave or a servant. And ancient Greeks kind of had the same idea that we have that we um, we have a standard style. So something like this could be a standard style and could be personalized slightly, depending on how much a patron wanted to spend, which is still relevant today. And then we have, you can't really see it, but like here their names are carved into the stone. And then this is the roof line. It's made to mimic an ancient Greek temple. So that's important, we'll come back to it. <laughs> Okay, we're moving forward to the lower burial ground. So this is looking in to the site, and you can see some standing uh, grave markers. So the first one I wanted to talk about is this one. It says, I'll read it to you, <laughs> in memory of Isabella who died on May 1st, 1826, aged 11 and a half year, no, one and a half years, and then Sarah Catherine who died February 7th, 1828, aged 10 years. Susanna died November 11th, 1830, aged 16 days. So all these girls passed away within a span of six years and they were all quite young. This was kind of a good example of the uh, high infant mortality rate that was present in uh, 19th century Kingston, which is until modern medicine was very common pretty much everywhere through history. So a detail. So these sunbursts, which are here on both sides, those are a classical feature. They are commonly portrayed in Roman mosaics and they also have a Christian meaning too. So these are seen as uh, kind of like, they symbolize Christ as the son of the righteous, son, son. And then in the center we have a willow tree and it's quite stylized, but it's a willow tree. And a willow, or a weeping willow, as it's commonly called, represents somebody's grief over death. So here we're probably seeing maybe the parents' grief of the children who have died. Um, it's representing normally like someone who's living, who's still grieving for these people. Um, it's often, we see normally that the willow is normally paired with an urn. And this also goes back to a classical reference. Uh, it's based, uh, Greeks and Romans would put their cremated remains of people into urns and then would place them into graveyards. So it was very common for urns to be in graves and, and be well seen too. Okay, the next marker. So this one is for Christiana Walker. Alexander, John, Christiana, Sarah, and Alexander, John, Ferns. So we do have um, all of their dates. So I'll just read it to you quickly. Christiana Walker, she was aged eight months and passed away in 1828. Alexander, John, passed away in 1830, aged one year, five months. Christiana, Sarah, 
died in 1832, aged one year and four months. Children of A.J. Ferns, and then at the very bottom, kind of in smaller, a bit smaller font, says Alexander John Ferns, he's the father of the above children, died in 1835, aged 36 years. So, <laughs> this is also, this one shows you infant mortality too, but this also is kind of representing the high need for places to bury people in Kingston and not having it. So we're seeing reuse of the grave markers and most likely the graves were being reused, reopened, and more bodies were being placed in. There just wasn't enough places to put bodies at this point. So overall shape of the grave marker, it's not super fancy, but it relates to the classical style. Also, just before I move on, the back of this um, grave marker is highly worked. Like we're seeing a lot of quarrying marks, like a lot. So based on the high degree of polish that's done on the front, I my best guess is that this back was covered or was like, placed against something because why would you polish it to such a high shine on the front and then leave the back in a worked state like that? So it's possible originally there was something behind it. Okay, details. So what I was, I was looking for, so the top three names of the children all seem very similar. They all are done in kind of the same style. And I had like this feeling that the last one of Alexander John Ferns wasn't the same. And I just knew that like a different hand had done this and I was like trying to find a reason to show you that I knew this was different. And so this is so hard to see, but as you like can see up here on the A's, the, it's weighted to the right. So the larger fatter side of the letter is to the right. And when we get down here, so the Alexander John, it's weighted to the left. So obviously this is later. We obviously are having someone trying to mimic these earlier styles. And then we have a slight problem. Like, it's not noticeable. Like, it took me a while to realize why I was like, this is different. But that was it. And then the other thing I just wanted to talk about is this comparison. So this is that ancient Greek stele I was talking about. And this is the, like, stylized version of that here. So we kind of were seeing that classical... Um, echo of a roof line. So next one, this is Christopher W. Smith and William Smith. So I'll just read it to you up here in this circle. It says, in memory of Christopher W. Smith, son of Thomas and Jane Smith, who died 2nd of December, 1833, aged 17 years and four months. The very bottom in the square says, also of William, his brother, aged two months. And then in the very bottom, it says Cullen down here. So this is kind of a different carving style we've already can see. Um, it's, there's a high degree of artistry that's being used in this top portion. We are seeing flowers carved in relief and even the words here, pretty well done. This isn't just someone who picked up a chisel and started working. And then for the bottom of William, the brother of Christopher Smith, we see it's not as much work has been done for this. We kind of see it's not as highly stylized. There's not as much um, 
really time or artistry that was spent here. So it's obviously that they were not expecting this second death to happen so soon. And even though like not as much time was spent on getting this carved, um, it's probably not that the parents didn't love him any less than they loved his brother. It's just it was probably very unexpected, and it was a small child, and kind of have a different mindset for that. So here in the bottom where it's carved and says Cullen, so this is actually a reference to the name of the carver who carved this stone. It's the signature of John Cullen, a stone worker who's active in Kingston from 1833 to 34, and it's possible he's here longer. Those are just the dates we have. So it's common for stone workers to carve their names as sort of a business card for people to be able to tell who did it, and maybe if they wanted them to carve another stone for them, they'd know who to go to. The issue with putting it at the very bottom is that with soil accumulation and grass, it will eventually cover his name, so that was kind of probably an issue. Just moving on quickly. <laughs> this one is um, one of the fancier ones, I think. We're still getting the Roman-esque sunbursts up here. Um, the script style writing is quite a bit fancier. And then even here, we are getting quite a bit of fancier letters. But um, we're also probably seeing this due to the soft nature of the stone. So they're either limestone or marble, and that's quite a soft stone, so it's easier to carve. So there are quite a few errors, spelling errors, and um, just other errors that have like happened while carving this. And we can I'll give you some details here of it. It's most likely by the time they've made these errors, which are like, they're like pretty far down. I'll go back. We have errors like down here. We have errors up here. By the time you get down there and you've already done this whole fancy top, you can't, you can't go back <laughs> and you can't start again. And you've already have this like good piece of like stone. You can't do it again. You just like try your best to fix it and keep going. Um, so he's like tried to add in smaller letters, and you can see here there's a very small D to signify resigned to God, and then spirit is spelt very wrong, but it's okay. And what I think is kind of most important about this is up here we have P. Higgins Kingston. So that's actually a reference to the carver who carved this stone. Um, and so we do have a reference to P.W. Higgins, and he was active in Kingston and Picton, so Prince Edward County, from 1948 to 46. Although I have found a marker on the south side of the church Sunday school wall that does reference the same person, and um, so it was 1812. So it seems he might have been in Kingston for a lot longer than originally thought. Or it could have been a family business. We're not really sure. P. Higgins wasn't taking chances, though. There's no way grass or soil was going to accumulate and knock him out. He put it at the top. He didn't want that. So last one is just a fragment. So in Ontario, we, see, we can see a lot of angels, full-body angels um, of adults. But we have uh, cherubs. When they're coming up, they're small, toddler-like children. And when they're happening here in Ontario, we don't get full body. We just see their faces with wings. And 
Um, when they appear like this, they're not actually just an angel. This is actually representing, um, they call them soul effigies. This is the soul winging its way to heaven. That's what these represent. And we also have um, a trefoil cross here, but this is just a fragment. I think it were, there would have been another soul effigy and maybe another cross. It wouldn't have been balanced, so I think there's a lot that would have been missing. And so I wanted to pull a comparison um, from our fragment from the lower burial ground and another um, one that was carved in the cataract cemetery. Um, so this is like another soul effigy from another tombstone, and we're seeing a very similar style. And this one is done by uh, P. Higgins of Kingston, so it's possible this one could have been something similar to him. And to kind of wrap up my presentation, um, with the Sunday school that was built over this portion, we have an unintentional kind of case study of showing preservation of tombstones within Kingston. And I think this is really important because we can see quite a drastic difference. I took this photo a month ago, and this photo is by Sue from over the summer. The shock, like, it's very shocking difference to see between these two stones. And even though uh, reflective transformation imaging, RTI, was done on the outdoor markers, everything that was there that could be gathered was gathered. But I kind of would like to think um, about like where this leaves us going forward. Uh, I have a lot of questions about where do we stand on the preservation of historic monuments? Uh, how do we decide to move forward in this? And what information do we deem worth losing? Is it okay to allow these to disappear? And then who gets to decide to preserve these? Who, in preservation, what does that mean? Does that mean these are covered? Does that mean these are removed from the elements? It uh, kind of brings up a lot of questions to think about. And that is all for me. Hey, at this point, is there going to be a panel of the three of you who are going to now position? One of the things about interdisciplinary work that was touched on briefly this morning is some of the challenges, too, of doing interdisciplinary work with different disciplines. That could be something. Or then the second way, perhaps, is that the audience could start peppering you with questions, and you could each shy your hand up at them, like, like as with the panel this morning. Yeah, I think the peppering of questions always like, gets really good conversation flowing, Sure. if there's any questions. Actually, I have, excuse me, I have a few questions, uh, but I'll start with one. Alicia, um, one of the grave markers, it just it just said also. What do, what do you make of the, it was someone, I think it was, I think it was the Christopher and William one, that sort of Christopher, W, blah, 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 also his brother. What do you make of that also? I 
think that also really just refers to kind of an unexpected death and having to like quickly put somewhere to rest. So I think just like that addition of the also is just like we have no time, um, mm. maybe that we're low on funds. Um, but baby too, our view of children has changed so much since like modern medicine has like come to view. But especially with my studies and like ancient Greek stuff, um, the way that they viewed children wasn't the same way that we view children today. And it's mostly because you can't, every time you have a child and you're like, this is the love of my life, I will love them forever. And then they die three months later and you could have 10 children and one survives. That is detrimental to your being. Like I don't think that's something that could people could survive. So I think it could be like a slight disconnect too, but it's obviously not as close as ancient Greek one, but the also, I think it's just, they didn't even like put his last name, obviously it's the same as his brothers, but I think it was just like really quick to be like, also, we have to put this person in the ground. Yeah, right. uh, and I guess my second question, uh, Tim, just sort of a technical question, when you're running the little lawnmower over <laughs> um, extremely uneven ground, how, how, how does the unevenness of the terrain affect the, the data that you collect? That's actually a super great question because we did run into a lot of problems. I mean, um, with because it's sitting so close to the ground, um, you're going to even having debris um, catching the bottom side of the, of the device um, can be very tricky. So dealing with that, um, we basically had a plan in place from the start. We said if we ran into something, we'll stop and we'll press pause in the survey and we'll move it to the side and we'll continue. So it's kind of like a, like a line correction and just allowing you to continue, continue the same path um, and have a slight offset. So we took notes of all of that and throughout the survey process we kind of acknowledged that um, we wouldn't get perfect lines and that at some point we'd have to stop. Um, we're not gonna be able to lift this probably 100 pound machine over gravestones all the time. Um, and when you lift it, you're also adding an element of unevenness an, an, an when you're going up and down. So. Um, just acknowledging that is very important and seeing that um, the data you're collecting um, and whenever we struck up like had a spot where we might think you know this could cause a problem in the data um, there's a button you can press that puts a marker and I believe there were actually a few markers in the um, on the slide I showed um, with the data like the visual representation um, basically those markers just meant you know like if there's some huge anomaly here that doesn't make any sense, um, <coughs> be wary because it might be due to um, a rock getting caught under the machine or um, something of those sorts. Um, um, aside from that, corrections, um, we're actually, um, if you're looking for exact data, you can perform um, data corrections on all of your data to kind of get them normalized to a certain point. Um, that's not as necessary for a project like this, um, just because we're very focused on looking for um, anything we can find. So we're not necessarily looking for something, we're looking for anything. Okay. And that's kind of <laughs> where that goes through. Um, I, that was an amazing presentation. And obviously the three of you really have a lot of background knowledge in what you were doing. Did you find anything surprising when you were there? Like did you, when, when you did the Ra um, the radar, did you, were you surprised or were you generally feeling what you found there was what you were going to see and were you surprised with those those spelling errors? Like I can't believe that someone would have spent all of that you know, investment in that stone and then had that, like with the Charles with the little S, 
And then Sue, like w you have a, an extensive background in this kind of work, and do, were you surprised? Did you find something shocking that you weren't su expecting? Uh, maybe I could sort of start this with the most shocking thing to me um, was the realization um, first that no one else had noticed this, um, but second that the standing the, the standing markers that you could see in those images aren't in the same location since 1937 when Colonel Long did his survey. They've been moved <laughs> and probably erected at that point to stand. So just kind of realizing that, I thought, well, how come nobody actually looked at his 1937 plan to realize this? We're, we're not dealing with anything that is in situ. We're not dealing with any, there's so much disturbance and so many things that have gone on uh, well, in the last um, several decades, that um, was kind of like that to me. That was the biggest. I mean, I knew there was a lot of disturbance, um, and we 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 figured that probably there would be things to find, additional things to find. But again, I wasn't. We were all kind of shocked when we found the new stones, <laughs> which also weren't in long survey. Wow. You know, so I think it was just. The whole space was full of surprises, right? Everything, um, and there are other there are d other um, spelling errors that that um, Alicia didn't talk about. There are names that have been erased and sort of re, kind of redone so that you can hardly read them at all. And other weird. Uh, I think the, the the weirdest one is that for Ch Charles, we know from the burial records, is another Charles, and on the stone it says Charisse. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know how do you. But anyway, so just multiple, multiple things that were, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd have any idea of what to expect other than a great deal of disturbance. Wow. There's <laughs> so much weirdness. Yeah. I don't know if you guys um, have. Yeah. So when I was, when I was coming into it, I like love grave markers and stuff. I think they're so interesting, but. Um, when I started, and I started looking into this more from a kind of art historical perspective, and then they were like all in like a classical, like Greek style, I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, minimal research. I was like, oh, stop. <laughs> so I was like, yes. I was like, this is lining up perfectly. I was like, this is just relates so well. And I wasn't too surprised with the spelling mistakes. I think that always comes... Um, there's always kind of like a room of error with uh, kind of artists. And so I've seen a lot of errors in art that are either sometimes with paintings, they paint them out, but you can like really find those errors if you look hard enough. And if you weren't looking, also there is kind of like old English of like the early 19th century isn't exactly the same as what we use today. So like the spelling errors, yeah, it's possible. But um, yeah, there's always that like room for error, and like I see it a lot in art, and like even ancient Greek art. Like there's always kind of this like little bit of room for error, and they're like, it's done. <laughs> I can't fix it now. <laughs> um, so that's always kind of like just something interesting. Cool. Yeah, and I think from just my perspective, um, when you look at uh, a case like this, and you perform a survey there, and you're kind of looking at it, and you think well this happened here like where else could this have happened you know there are hundreds thousands of churches and burial grounds all over the place um, even we did a separate survey at, at the Willoughby Cemetery 
And the question is, I mean, the gravestones there have all been, um, they're starting to like seep into the ground and kind of, um, you, when you go over the terrain there, I mean, going back to the question before, um, the terrain was, it was like walking through a bunch of potholes just from um, the fr freeze-thaw cycles. So kind of thinking, this has happened in Kingston, where you'd think that records would be kept to a higher standard than other places. So the shock for me was, wow, like all these other cemeteries that we've looked at and all these other burial grounds that we've looked at, um, like, there's so much we don't know. And there's so much that we will never know. Um, and I think that's the biggest shock in a project like this is just understanding that this is a single case of likely thousands. And it's a problem that um, it probably, a lot of people have different views and different opinions on it, and it probably splits a lot of people, you know? Like, um, I know Alicia was talking about the preservation, you know? Like, that's just one aspect, this huge ordeal of this is, like, a thing that's happened in the past. How can we, as not only, an inter like, an interdisciplinary group, um, including everybody, but we as mo like modern humans kind of correct for that. And I think that that's very important to acknowledge that um, it, that's the, sh the shock, that we're kind of, there are so many things that are out of place that you have to figure out. Loss of information. Yeah. Yeah, so I had a question from Alicia that um, with multiple burials per grave, was it like consistent all on all of our tombstones, or it was like you could find some that had one body on them? So we can't know for sure if there's multiple bodies in the grave due to like the movement of these stones. They're not over their original graves. It's kind of my best like plausible guess that they are reusing um, areas because there's nowhere else to put the bodies. Um, so. Since we aren't allowed to like excavate them or check the remains, because you could do like a skeletal analysis, and that's obviously not okay to do um, here. So because we can't do that, we can't go through. And because of the disturbance, even if we did have clearance to excavate these, I don't know if we would get any secure burials that haven't been at least jostled or moved in the last couple hundred of years. Um, there's so much surface level change in this area that I don't think we would get a secure strata of these kind of burials. I think we would just get kind of a jumbled mess of bones, kind of. And what about those 24 bones that you were talking about? And were they like mixed bones, like, uh, like men, women, children, kids, whatever? Okay, so, um, we we haven't done detailed analysis of them. We've you just sort of done preliminary. Though? Pardon? You did not have any photo. No, oh. no. Um, again, it's it's about respect um, for the dead, and it's very very strictly controlled. So we just did preliminary um, sorting. We had a lot of. Um, see if I can remember this correctly. We had a lot of left side of the body, so we had multiple multiple left arms, so um, humerus, radius, and ulna. Um, we had, I think, a left femur, femur, yeah. And so again, we don't know whether they're from the same 
um, obviously can't be from the same when you've got three, <laughs> three left arms. Um, but, but we don't know whether most of the, the remains are from one disturbed burial or multiple burials. My best guess is they're from multiple burials. Um, only looking at, at the way the disturbance is within that space, but we don't know. Um, so we're, we're not in a position to do an in-depth um, analysis, and we have to rebury once so we're done. So you found all those 24 bones scattered or in one place? No, they're scattered. Scattered, scattered throughout the space. Among as uh, adults. They weren't. Yes. They weren't children. children. They were adults. Yes. Large. The first one is about past understandings of Kingstonians' relation to sacred space. And I'm wondering specifically if you can find out, if, like when the Sunday school was built on top of part of it, or the other construction was done, was there any protest or concern elicited by anybody? And, and would it show up in minutes or in the newspapers? Or how did people think about it at the um, time? There doesn't, I, I haven't come across any references to construction activities, we see more references to the disgraceful nature of more so the upper burial ground than the lower burial ground, but there is also complaints about the lower burial ground. Um, there is one, I can't remember the exact quote, but a, a newspaper, um, I guess it was an editorial, um, where the, the individual is talking about how awful it is that the condition is so run down of the cemetery. And they, they sort of end the whole thing by saying that if this was, I think it's City, city Park, I can't remember now. The thing is, if this was City Park, this would not be happening. So this is after, um, or around the time that um, they, they were considering turning um, the upper burial ground into the, the park, which became McBurney Park, right, okay. colloquially known as um, Skeleton Park. But, um, it, it seems to be more, although the lower burial ground would fall into this too, the divide is the, the north the north and the south, which has been the long, ongoing divide in Kingston. It's sort of like Princess Street, north of Princess Street is kind of like the tracks, the railway tracks kind of thing. Um, so more for the not keeping the cemeteries um, in good condition as opposed to construction. And what I guess I'm finding shocking is that St. Paul's is not the only example that we know of in Kingston. It seems to have been an, um, an ongoing, totally accepted mm -hmm. practice where churches are built in um, over top of cemeteries because the same thing happens for the Union Cemetery, which is um, basically at the corner of Johnson and Barry. So do you know where the um, Bethel Church is? The Bethel Church was built on top of the Union Cemetery, and the Bethel Church Sunday School was built on top of the cemetery, and the modern piece of the church hall is built on top of the cemetery. So this, and that that's happens much later, actually. Well, no, I guess it's about roughly the same, because I think that the Sunday School is 1878. So it seems to be a common practice. People have died, they've been buried, and they no longer need this 
space. Well, they're using the space, but they're not. It's not an active. Right, or there's not families that are actively yeah. going. No, you can't. Well, I wouldn't say so because there are lots of lots of families for the lower burial ground. You know, the Cartwrights are still around. The mm -hmm. um, other families, um, the Stewarts are still around. Yeah, so there's lots of wealthy, prominent families. But I suppose they're happy because their piece of the cemetery didn't get demoed by the church construction. It's possible. The school is, is back where it is, as opposed to yeah. Uh, so, uh, but nothing in, that we know of yet in the record, and that's why the second phase of this project involves more historical okay. research. So that's okay. something that's that perhaps. I've got one more question. Sorry. I'm just curious about uh, your coming from. Passages from the introduction to um, Fields of Fire, Fortified Works of Kingston Harbor, which is um, the 2006, 2003, number 76 um, edition of Ontario Archaeology, um, where uh, so um, I just want to say here this is uh, sort of pitting the archaeologist, the historical <coughs> archaeologist, against the historian. <laughs> it kind of puts us in, into a little bit of context here. Um, so this is our staff um, historian, Earl Moorhead, that speaks about on collaborating with the archaeologist. He says, quote, the process is different for every project, but always entails surprise, bafflement, self-doubt, reaction, and just occasionally the congruence of ideas. And he goes on to say, um, um, he was indeed surprised to find that archaeologists just want the facts and said that he learned to, quote, modify my writing as, to be as value-free as possible and to accept, <laughs> to accept that sometimes my rough notes will be preferred to a written report. <laughs> 
end quote. And then, I, if I could just, because this is really funny, not wanting to dwell on the, the historical archaeologist as some uncontrollable monster, <laughs> I would add this final comment from Earl Moorhead. And he says, secretly, he actually wrote this, secretly what the archaeologist would like is the staff historian's verbatim notes and his computer database from which to extract just the hard facts. And to dispense with his report altogether, secretly the staff historian would like to point out that in history, hard facts are notoriously slippery. An archaeological report without solid and substantial historical <coughs> input suffers from a poverty of information. A history written without regard for the archaeology and without direct contributions by the archaeologists, and I would add by people like the, the geophysics and all the other um, sort of disciplines that feed into uh, such projects, um, also suffers from a poverty of information. Both historian and archaeologists should recognize any points of agreement and strive for a congruence of ideas. <laughs> so, um, we actually haven't, haven't had a chance to kind of, this is our, this is our effort um, to kind of discuss these things, and I think it would be worthwhile for phase, in phase two, if perhaps we have the opportunity to bring some of this together to, you know, to put in the report. And, and on the findings and additional interpretations because as you heard from mine was just sort of like the nuts and bolts. This is how we did it. This is what we found. These are the numbers. This is, you know, um, without that sort of additional analysis and input. And so um, the, the report that I had to put together for the ministry is literally just the nuts and bolts because I had to get it out as fast as possible. And I'm thinking that when we go back and do our additional cleaning and, and try to finish up, that the next report can actually have a little bit more of, of this stuff. So please don't disappear. Well, I know you won't, but don't disappear without you know providing that input so that that can then go in, and then and you get your yeah. name on the report, um, into the report so that we do have more of the, the collaborative and interpretive and sort of expanded in, um, knowledge and benefit from, from all of us, as opposed to me being that that uncontrollable monster. <laughs> Just give me your notes and I'm going to put it in the report. <laughs> Do with it what I want. So <laughs> And, honest, and honestly, even building on that, like, um, just discussing, like, even from a geological standpoint, like, the gravestones, like, I know from um, the research in the area that there's not a lot of marble, or at least there's not um, a good enough grade of marble to be put into tombstones or gravestones. Um, and, like, uh, just from my um, studies at the university so far, we've done trips around and we've looked at mar even marble. There is marble up um, north on um, Highway 10. Um, but it's very has very large grain sizes, so it's not a very high quality of marble. Um, whereas the limestone um, is obvious; you can see limestone everywhere in Kingston. I can, we can go to West Campus, and there's a giant outcrop of it. Um, so even from that perspective, um, kind of the interdisciplinary act of that is, um, from the science standpoint, it's um, like just like the like the geological standpoint, it's you would immediately assume that all of these gravestones were um, either limestone or possibly um, there's some granite, I'll loosely use the term granite, but there's some igneous intrusive rock further north of here as well um, that would be logical. Um, but you could be inputting some marble as well. So. 
I was like, these look like, I was like, we were talking and I was like, oh, like, I was like, I think some of these are marble. Tim was like, no. He's like, no marble in this area. I was like, those are marble. They are marble. I was like, let me in. No, and that's and that's a thing where like we're like, no, it's it's logical because but the marble that would have had to come would have had to be brought would have had to have been brought in, right? So from a standpoint. Yes. Did you get that? I did get the email. So there's like quite a bit of like marble kind of coming from like the Collingwood-ish area. There's like somewhere in there there's marble, but apparently Sue also found a footnote about uh, the Rudo Canal when they started, they were shipping marble down from up in that region Gatineau. to from Gatineau. So, yeah, so it's in, going in 1832. Yeah, they like, we think oh, was so long ago they didn't have anything, horses, whatever, <laughs> but they were shipping quite a bit of stuff. They had a lot of trade happening. And that was, I guess, that's kind of the best <laughs> example of what we've had so far, where you're looking at it, where um, like granite and limestone make complete sense. Like, why would you spend money? Why would you spend money to ship a slab of marble from Gatineau? It's kind of the thought. Yeah, you could. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a status thing. because yeah. the military built a canal just why to bring not? marble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The sole purpose of the canal was, was to bring marble. <laughs> they were really lacking in this area. So. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your exciting project I with us. I think we have one more question. Oh, oh, yes. you do. It's just I that it's, it's um, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. I did. I, my name is Park, uh, John, John Brennan. I work for Parks Canada for 30 years, which is, uh, has both natural and cultural uh, heritage responsibilities federally. And one of the things that I learned in my time with Parks Canada was how much better we were when we worked together. Uh, so. Whether I worked with engineers and architects and landscape architects, and curators, and sometimes even archaeologists and historians, uh, you know, they, and they all had a piece to bring to uh, the uh, whatever project we were working on. I worked in operations, I worked in policy, I worked in strategic planning, and they were all better by. So I guess my only, and it's so good to see the work that you guys have pulled together. Because it reinforces my own personal background and learning. And I guess remember what the Dean said this morning about seeking out, particularly uh, Warren, I think it was, seeking out opportunities and, uh, and time to, uh, to work with others and find out what the heck do they think of this. Um, because you'll be surprised. Uh, sometimes they only want to know. Sometimes you only want to know their facts and you don't want to know their interpretation, but other times you also want to know the interpretation. So anyway, <laughs> I thank you very much. You, you have reinforced what I thought was important about this area underneath the uh, underneath church hall. Thanks, That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.